Well, good morning, everyone. We're back in Philippines. So if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn with me there. And so while um, Gary's running around in the sun, having a great time, I'm sitting up studying, trying to get the last things done. <laughs> but yeah, it's fantastic. To, um, he's already stolen my sermon in the first few things that he did for his intro, so that's how things go sometimes, isn't it? Um, but we're, we're looking at Philippines, and Gary did the intro last week, and then this week we carry on from verses 3 to verses 8. So... Um, just before we start, we're going to be talking a lot about this, well, Philippines does talk a lot about joy and about him rejoicing, and um, it's mentioned quite a few times in the book. So the word joy, as found from MrDictionary.com, from MrGoogle.com, states that it's a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. Okay. And then from MrWikipedia.com, as you can see, I've done lots of research this week. So from MrWikipedia.com, it says, Joy is an emotion in response to a pleasant observation or remembrance thereof. The reason for a joyful reaction is usually that some, um, some expectation or need has been satisfied. Joy is usually expressed by a smile, a laughter, or exclamation of joy. In Hebrew, it's called sameach. And sameach is like, it's an, it's an emotion that comes up that you can see. So when you say someone's samach, it's not just a theoretical thing. It's something that you'll see from someone. It'll actually come through them, and you can pick up that they're, they're joyous. So that's the, the Hebrew side of things. But for many, joy can come in, like, lots of different forms. So when you think of joy, it might mean all sorts of different things to each person. For some of you, it may mean what you can do with your money. So for my workmates, for example, joy is winning lotto. If they win lotto, joy to them is like having that money to be able to, to do whatever they would like to do with it. That's what joy is. If only I could win a certain prize or get a certain thing, then I'll be joyous. That's what joy is sometimes for them. For others, it might be the assets that you own. You're really, joy for you is held in the asset, that prized possession that you have. And when you have it, that's, that's great joy. It may be in the power or the influence that you have over others. Maybe that's where you get your joy from. It might be in the career that you have or the place that you're wanting to get to. Maybe if you get to that position, then you'll have great joy. Um, for others, it might be the recognition of who you are so that when people recognize you for what you've done and who you are, then you receive joy. It may be um, in the relationships that you have. Maybe that's where your joy comes from. And for others, it might be just really simplistic as being entertained. Maybe being entertained, going to the movies, or whatever it is that you call entertainment, that brings you joy. And or all the things that are around us, all the pleasures and the things that surround us, maybe that's where you get your joy from. Where is it that that source of joy comes from for you? But you know, as Christians, and only as Christians, we have a source of joy that is far greater than all the world can offer. The problem is, is do we live it like that is that, that we do have the source of joy that only believers can have? And as we start, I'm going to ask you a question. On a scale, if, if negative 10 is over here and positive 10 is over here, if negative 10 is that you're really, really unhappy, and then positive 10 is that you're really, really, really happy, 
where would you place yourself on that scale? Now, I'm not talking about the joy as in, like, what movie did you see last night? Or what was the last joke you heard that gave you joy? But if you were to look over the last year, where would you place yourself on that scale? From negative 10 to positive 10. Where would you place yourself? Just have a think and just pick a number and place that number on that scale. Where would you say that you are from negative 10 to positive 10? And, you know, the next question following that is, is your life evidenced by the mark that you put on that scale? So if you put yourself really highly and say, yeah, look, I'm, man, I'm a real joyous person, would other people, if I went to saw people that you know really well, would they place the mark that you just placed on yourself in the same place? Because that's the thing. Joy, like samach, is an emotion that comes out. People will see it. You can't hide true joy. Will people, and where are you at in that scale of being, or how joyous are you? And you know, the sad fact is that we often find unbelievers far more joyous than Christians. That's the true fact. You'll often find unbelievers have far more joy than believers do. And yet their joys comes from pleasures that can only come from what this world has to offer. And yet they have great joy and zeal and excitement of life. And Christians, they can often, um, or for Christians even, they can often become people who draw us to them because of their zeal and because of their excitement of life. And we get pulled towards seeing their joy and we think that that's where joy is found because they are so happy in, in this zeal of life. And it may also be that we would rather see a sports game or go fishing or do some other form of entertainment above what the church has to offer, because that's more fun. That's where we find joy. That's where we see so much joy. And sadly, many Christians see examples like this, like sportsmen, things like that. Many people see the adventures, sports got people, those kinds of things, as the place to get your source of joy from. And often, even we as Christians do that. And it... it um, And they have that for their own lives. But now I want you to turn to Philippines, if you're there now, which is great. And I want you to consider the words from the Apostle Paul, who was the happiest man in Rome, who was sitting in a Roman prison. Okay, so let's read from verse 3. It says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you, Sorry, making a request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Question, where does Paul get his joy from? Okay, like there's so much in the book of Philippines. It talks about what we're talking here in verse 4, the prayer that he prays with all joy. In verse 18, it says that um, he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. In verse 25, Paul will remain for the Philippines' joy. He's, he's got this conflict between himself. He says, I'd, I'd want to be home with the Lord, but I know it's more joyous for you that I remain. 
In verse chapter 2, verse 2, he asks the Philippines to complete his joy. In verse 17, he says he is glad and rejoices with the Philippines. In verse 28, he sends Epaphrodites, is that how you say his name, that the Philippines may rejoice. And he tells in verse 29, he tells the Philippines to rejoice and Epaphrodites with joy. He tells the Philippines to rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 3, verse 1. In 4, verse 1, he tells the Philippines that they are his joy. In verse 4 of chapter 4, he tells the Philippines twice to rejoice in the Lord. And then in verse 10 of chapter 4, he rejoiced in the Lord at the Philippines' concern for him. So there's lots of rejoicing from Paul in prison. So where does Paul get such joy from? Where is the source of joy from inside these prison walls? Well, we know it's not from his money or from his assets because he's stuck in prison. His joy isn't coming from those things. And it's definitely not from being entertained or by the pleasures that are around him being stuck in a cell. But maybe you could think his joy is found in his career as maybe as an activist. Maybe he's getting his joy from being an activist in his workplace, what he's decided to do, and that's where he's getting his joy or by his power of influence that he has over the Philippines or other churches like them. Maybe that's where he gets the source of this power from to be so joyous. Well, we speak much about rejoicing in this book, but it's only really small in comparison to something else. And that's the source of Paul's joy. So although this book talks so much about, about being joyous and rejoicing, it's only very small in comparison to it, it, the book also gives us the source of where this joy comes from. For example, in these four short chapters, we're gonna, we have mentions of words like um, when it talks about, say, from God or from the Father, we have from Father, our Father, my Father, of Father, with Father, or for God is, but God, worship of God, and that's in the four chapters around 23 times. So in 23 times we have this, the idea of God and Father in there. But it's even more, like when we come to the, the title, if I just say the Lord Jesus Christ, if you talk about of, in Christ, that Christ, by Christ, preach Christ, also Christ, is Christ, with Christ, through Christ, our Christ, for Christ, which Christ. So by just taking those, those words, if I was to take the title of the Lord Jesus Christ, I've counted that only once. Okay, so in other parts of Philippines, you'll see just in the words in Christ, or sometimes it'll be Jesus Christ. But if it was the Lord Jesus Christ, I've only taken that once. In the four chapters that are in the Philippines, in the book of Philippines, I counted it 59 times in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and then another three times I found the mentioning of the Spirit. So when it comes to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we have a total of around 85 times that it's mentioned in the book of Philippines. Where does Paul get the source of joy from? It's not that he's just a happy guy or that he's happy in his career occupation. It's because of the source of where he drives this from. So in Philippines um, chapter or 1, verse 1, I think you find it in the first seven words that are in this book. And it says this, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. Now, Gary just talked to us a little bit about Hagar being a servant, a maid servant. Well, this morning I would like to talk a little bit about the idea of what a bond servant is. 
and why Paul has this such a great joy that he can, um, has all this going through the book of Philippines. And to get there, what I'd like you to do with, with, is turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45. Now, Isaiah is something that I've been going through for the last little while, actually, but I've been, yeah, I've been really enjoying it. But in Isaiah chapter 45, there's this really huge historical figure, a guy named King Cyrus. And King Cyrus is the, um, the Medo-Persian king, and he is someone who um, takes this place. And Isaiah, this part in Isaiah is written a hundred years at least before he turns up on the scene. So these words that you read now are a hundred years before he even takes his place as king. And this is, what we're going to do is, what Isaiah does is it uses King Cyrus as the main point of talking about a servant, someone that is following God, that God uses to follow him. And then he's going to contrast that very strongly from Isaiah chapter 49 onwards with the true servant. Okay, but to get the context, we're going to see about this. Now, this is going to be the world's, and you're going to see it so much. This is what the world's point of view of joy is. So in chapter 45, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut down the bars of iron. I will give you treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. How's that for joy? That's world joy. Whatever you want to do, break through, destroy nations, take treasures, whatever you want, like whatever you're going to do, and the, guess what? Even better is the Lord's going to do that for you. He's going to set those paths before you. And he calls him. He even says those words in verse 3. You know, I know you, Cyrus. And he says, I'm going to call you out by your name. Isn't that amazing? A hundred years before he turns up on the scene, he calls him out by his name. And he says, I am the God of Israel. And then verse 4, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. I have even called you by your name. He's calling him out directly. Here's King Cyrus with whatever this world can give. Power, money, the treasures, whatever enemies that face him, he wipes them out. He is an amazing guy. There is so much what we would consider worldly joy. Like the, whatever it is, he's been able to do it. But then look at the second part of verse 4. I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. You know, King Cyrus, never further on when we look at him, is named as someone that actually accepted the Lord. He may have, but it's not put there. What he did do is that he put God with his other gods that he did have, and he used God, he recognized God, but maybe he just got put him with the others that he already had in existence. Someone that has amazing joy in this world, so many things, treasures, riches, and yet he never knew the Lord himself. And he carries on in verse 5, I am the Lord, there is no other, there is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. That's King Cyrus. 
And in verse 28, of uh, the, so verse, the last verse before um, uh, chapter 45, so Isaiah 44, verse 28, we have God's perspective on who King Cyrus is. And he says this in verse 28. He says, who says of Cyrus, well, he is my shepherd, okay? And he shall perform all my pleasure. Notice whose pleasure it is. It is the Lord's pleasure to allow King Cyrus, an unbeliever who does not know him, to do the things that God would require of him. And in this, even King Cyrus has great joy. He shall perform all my pleasure. The pleasure, the joy from this side is from God the Father. And he says to Jerusalem, you will be built into the temple, your foundations shall be laid. For me, that's so significant. Because in Daniel's prophecy, that's the kickoff point from this statement, which happens in the last book of the Old Testament in Second Chronicles, that for the Jewish layout of the Bible, the last verse, the last thing that God said to the Jewish people is this verse, is, is King Cyrus's decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And then that starts Daniel's time clock of his prophecy until, guess what, who turns up? Jesus, the Messiah. There's no coincidence for me. It's absolutely, the more you look at it, the more you stud, I study it, the more I'm convinced. And the thing that really excites me is that he didn't use some believer that was really holy that followed God. He used an unbeliever, a Gentile, someone that was a Median Persian king, that was all these things to do as the starting of the time clock for the Messiah to come. Now let's contrast that with this servant called Cyrus to the true servant in Isaiah chapter 49. So in Isaiah chapter 49, we suddenly take a big shift, and we're shifting from King Cyrus the servant to Jesus the Messiah. And look what it says in chapter 49 of Isaiah. It says, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shallow of his hand he has hidden me, and he made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. How can this be talking about the Messiah? When it says, what does it say here in verse 3? You are my servant who? O Israel. If it's talking about the Messiah, why would he not say, You are my servant, O Messiah? Or Son of that, whichever way you were going to name it. Why does he say, in whom I will be glorified? So if I was to talk to a rabbi about this passage, he would say this. It's not talking about Messiah. It is talking about Israel. Because look what it says. He said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. How then, if it's talking about the Messiah, would you say this to someone that's like a rabbi that would do it? Because this is exactly what they do. They say it's not talking about it. Look, it says Israel, and you must admit, what does it say? It's saying Israel. So why do I even say that it's talking about the Messiah? Well, in the same passage, we see the contrast between the servant and Israel. Look at me at verse 5. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. We're talking about the servant here. To bring who? Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the signs of the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. In verse 6, indeed he says, well, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant. 
to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. The contrast between verses 5 and 6, the servant is not Israel. The servant is the one that restores Jacob and Israel back to himself, both in in verses 5 and 6. It's not the servant. If that's the case, why then would God call in chapter 49, verse 3, you are my servant, O Israel? In what way did he name the Messiah? Why would he call the Messiah Israel when he's showing clearly that the servant is the one to restore Israel and restore Jacob? Well, there's two ways to look at it. One is the first thing is we're talking about Israel par excellence. You know, like Gary was saying, again, just in the the short part that he was saying that we were separated. Gentiles were set apart. Who was the nation that God was using? Israel. So when it came, why Israel? So when he says... um, In verse 3 again, you are my servant, O Israel. It could be Israel par excellence, meaning that all of the things that Israel as a nation could not achieve, one man could. The true Israel, the Messiah. Or the other way to look at it is what the word Israel means. What does, we hear about it all the time on the news, yesterday hour, all the time, in the news, in and out. What does the name mean? You hear it so often. What does Israel mean? It means a prince with God. That's the meaning of the name Israel. So in either way, whether you take it as being in this verse, that it's talking about the the person, that what the nation couldn't do, being Israel par excellence, or whether you see it as the meaning of the name, a prince with God, this is the Messiah that it's talking about, who will restore the servant, who is the servant, who will restore Israel, and then in verse 6 he goes, it's too small a thing that you would restore only, only Jacob and Israel. I'm sending you as a light to the Gentiles to be the salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's the servant. That's the part. Now turn with me to Isaiah 53. And from verse, chapter 49, as we carry on, it's all talking about the Messiah. And we get all the way over to Isaiah 53. Still talks about the Messiah, but I'm just going to jump in at verse 10. And we're going to see something else. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. And this is when talking about the Lord Jesus on the cross. And look at whose pleasure it is that this would happen. Yet it pleased the Lord, this is the Father, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to bruise the Messiah. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure, the joy of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Here we have a suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came, who was God himself, who came to this earth, to die on the cross for your and my sin, and it pleased the Father to do that. It was the God the Father's joy to allow his only begotten Son to die on that cross that we might have eternal life. And it was God's pleasure. It's a hard thing to grasp, but that's how much the God the Father allowed the joy in his life 
to go to the point where it would make such a hurtful thing on his own begotten son so that we could be, go into his presence as believers in his son. So when we go down to Philippine, or in the book that we're in, he says again in, in that verse one, he says that he is Paul and Timothy, they are bond servants of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a bond? Like if you were to get super glue and I was going to stick it on some, one of you, stick it to another one of you, you're going to be bond together. What were you bonding in? Well, Paul is saying that he's a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a bond servant, is to be glued to or stuck to the one that that you're being uh, that is your Lord, the one that you're getting stuck to. In Second Timothy chapter three and verse ten to twelve, we have these words regarding you and I as believers. See, that's the problem with the world's joy. You think of the world's joy. If it's if it's a rugby game, we go and watch the rugby. If the All Blacks lose, what happens? The joy level goes down pretty quick. But if they, if they win, then it goes up, yeah, really, you know, pretty, it's quite high. But what if it's a really tight game and things are played out hard and fast and, it's, and you're nervous right until the end and then they win? The joy goes even greater, doesn't it? It's just this whole escalation of joy. It's because of this working out, the struggle, the things that have been going on in the game, the, the clash of the titans, and then the, the victory at the end is like this great joy that comes out. Well, guess what? We as believers, if you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 10, it says something of a bit of a different nature. See, the world's joy comes in the escalation of how great something is, of the pleasure, of the excitement of winning, of the, the money, of the, the asset, of whatever it is. That's where this great joy comes from. But look at what it says that is promised to you and I as believers if we are going to be bondservants of Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, it says, But you carefully followed my doctrine. This is the same guy speaking, Paul. Manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You know, that's the promise to believers. If you are really going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, you, you might, you maybe, you will suffer persecution. And I think this is such a, a statement that people take wrong. This is what a lot of Christians think persecution is. So if I go up to Joe Bloggs on the street and I go up to him and I say, look, geez, you're going to hell. Jesus died for your sins, you're going to hell, da, 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 and you just give them a real that kind of gospel, and then he turns around and goes, da, 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 and starts rebuking you back and doing all these things, and you go, yes, look, I've been persecuted for Christ's sake. That's absolutely wrong. You've just done something completely foolish. It's not that you've been persecuted for Christ, but a lot of Christians think that's what persecution is. They think it's going forward, making a bold statement out there or something, and then when they get all this rebuke in return, then you go, oh, I've been persecuted for Christ. That's not it at all. Paul's the opposite when it comes to persecution. It's doing things in love, seeing where they're at, trying to help them go through all these means to try and show them the truth of the gospel. And even in the return of the truth and in love, you get in return, like Paul gets, thrown into prison. That's what persecution from 
others is really about. But we have sometimes such a messed up idea of what it means to be persecuted. It's, it's not that at all. It's doing the things that you can do of the best in, in love, but in return you get persecution. And that's what persecution have, or is more about than this idea that we sometimes have. So if you jump back to, with me to yeah, Philippines, and we're just going to finish with these statements that he makes. So when it comes to finding this joy, the real question is, where, where does Paul, and we know that he gets it in the Lord, but how do we as Christians receive this joy? How can we be joyous when it's not about our circumstances, but when it's to do with being persecuted because we're doing good for others. What does it mean in this joy? Well, look at me in verse 3 of this, these of Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And so every time, he's deep in prayer, always considering the, God, the Philippine church, always in every prayer, mind, make, uh, mind making request with you all with joy. The first thing is that Paul has joy in prayer. He has a, a passion and a joy in praying for the Philippines. The second thing in verse 5 is, if you look in there, he has joy in partnership. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. You know, there is such a power in fellowship. If we could only, we don't have at all time to explore that. But what it really means is that you have someone else that is really going for the same goals as you. There is nothing better when you are striving for something from the Lord and someone over here is doing the same thing, someone over here is doing the same thing, and they're all striving for the Lord and you're working off each other. And, and it is such a powerful thing. I had, there's been a few opportunities to do that. And when you're working together, it is honestly, it's this power of fellowship for the same goal. It's not about going out for a coffee together. It's not talking about that kind of fellowship. Again, Christian misunderstandings of some of these things. It's not about let's hang out and have a coffee and let's just have a coffee or go to the rugby club. Or It's not that kind of fellowship. A lot of the time when we talk, talk about Christian fellowship, we're just doing coffee. But this is talking about fellowship, meaning that absolutely go and have a coffee. But in that, talk about the things that are going on in your life. Have this fellowship, this where's your goal? Where are you going for the Lord? Where's your drive? How can I pray for you in that? And being this real kind of fellowship. So there is joy for fellowship in verse 5. And then in, in verse 6, we have joy of anticipation. Verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning that the work that is going on, and as you're going for God together, you know that if you carry on in these things, yes, some may fall away, but God will do it. It's his work, it's his completion. You know it's going to happen, and you have this joy so that even if you're in prison, you know that the Philippines are charging on from the Lord, charging on in the Lord, and that gives you great joy and your boldness as you see them charging for the Lord and them charging for the Lord, and you're all together going for the same goal. And lastly, it's in verse seven and eight. It's the joy of affection. Just as it is right for me to think of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defence. In confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. You know, true joy for the Christian is not circumstantial. Don't base it on how well you get a buzz, whatever that is. 
It's not, joy is not, as a believer, that sign of, yes, you can have it, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's the joy of life, the zeal, out of all the unbelievers, you know who should be the most bouncing off the walls? should be us. We should be so excited because of what the Lord has done. We can have what the world, not the, un, the fleshly stuff, but we can, we can have pleasures that God has given, of, given us in this world, that we can be excitement and zeal for life, but we have a well which is far deeper and gives joy far stronger than what can happen. For example, at a funeral. At a funeral, you can have grief and you can have sorrow. Can you also have joy? If they're a believer, absolutely. You can be grieving, you can be sorry. You can have joy mixed with grief and sorrow. But for the contrast, for an unbeliever, there is only grief and sorrow. And that's a big difference. But in Christ the Messiah, and we as believers should have that samach. That's the thing. We should have this whole passion, this joy that comes out. You know what? We should be the ones that attract non-believers to us. They shouldn't be attracting us to them because of their greatness of sports and because of their, their larger-than-life personalities. You know, we should be the magnets that draw them to us. Why? Because the light that is in you is greater than that that's in the world. It should be coming this way. But most often as Christians, we sometimes we're like dumb and we're gloom and they're like, yeah, Jesus died, and, and we give them this harsh gospel and all those kinds of things, and then we wonder why they don't come. It's like, why would you want to go? Well, if that's where you're going to, like, I've got a better life over here. We as Christians should be so joyous. It's just that sometimes we forget, or it's a trick of Satan. Look at the world's joy. That's your place of joy. But if we can have, be real joyous in the things in which we really, truly have, that's where our key is. And it's going to be evidenced by your face and by the fruit that you bear. If you are someone that's joyous and that you're spending your time with the Lord and you're doing these things, you will have joy. And it'll come out of you, and people will recognize that light that is in you. And if you're, if you're lacking this joy, and you're thinking, how do I do it? How do I get this joy that's in my life? First thing is, don't become a hermit. Okay? Some people think that the way to get joy is to be a hermit with God, and sit in this cave, and just sit there. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, okay? I mean, every morning you should be doing that. You should have your man cave and your woman cave. And you should be in this bat cave and whatever you call it. And you should be there and you should be spending time with God. But if that's the only way that you think you're going to get this joy, it's not the place. It's, it's the first step. It's having this place with God. And that's so important to have that place. But it's not found by just going through and thinking, I'm going to put everybody else. The whole world doesn't exist. It's just me and God. What happens quite often is that you go the other way, is you become hardened against the world, I've got it right, I'm with God, I'm with, and all these other things are a problem. So if you're lacking this joy, the first, don't be a hermit, definitely get in with God, like do your quiet times with the Lord. But, but it says in Acts chapter 2, by doctrine, by fellowship, not coffees, by fellowship, breaking of bread, and it says this on the verse that we have at the wall, if you ever remember, forget how do I get joy into my life? Just as you come through the doors, look at the verse that we've got on the wall. It is such a great help to think about how to get joy in your life. It says, giving thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known among the nations what he has done. To get joy in your life, you need that balance. You need that time with the Lord. You need the prayer. You need the fellowship. You need breaking of bread. And you need to go out and tell others about the Lord. Let's close in prayer. 
Lord, we thank you for just being able to come again in front of your presence, and we, we thank you, Lord, that the source of true joy is from you, Lord. And we thank you that it's not dependent upon the circumstances. Lord, you allowed the circumstances so that your own son would die upon the cross. And in hardness and in, in hurt, Lord, and in breaking of fellowship, you did this and it pleased you to do that so that you might save us. And Lord, help us to realize that true joy isn't just about being feeling a good feeling, Lord. Sometimes it's actually feeling... Uh, a feeling that might be persecution or conflict or all these things, Lord. But we know that when it's in you and our source of strength and our well of joy is in you, Lord, help us to be glued to you. Help us to be bondservants, to be close, and to understand what it means to have true joy. Lord, just help us to worship you and to give you praise that's true to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.